Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Walt Disney Concert Hall. Um, this is my first time back since you know all of this stuff. So how many for you, or how many of you are back for the first time? Yeah, I thought that would be the case. My wife and I are subscribers, but we were traveling in a lot of, for a lot of October, so we hadn't gotten here. But it sure is good to be back, and I'm sure looking forward to hearing some live music again. So welcome to this program of Korngold and Donetto and Johannes Brahms. My name is Tom Neenan. I was for about 30 years until the uh, end of the last academic year, the uh, professor of music history and music theory at Caltech. And many people don't realize that Caltech has a music department. Well, they don't really. They have a, they have a lecturer in music. Um, and I was that person for about 30 years. But there's a, there's a lot of music on the Caltech campus, as you might imagine. There's a great uh, symbiotic relationship between math and music. So the last time they did a survey of the undergraduate student body, about 30% of them were involved in music somehow, either the, uh, the very popular music courses or any number of ensembles. There are about uh, 30 chamber music ensembles going at any given time. There are two or three jazz bands. There's a wind ensemble. There's an orchestra. There are choirs. There's a lot of music on the Caltech campus. So that was a great, uh, a great place to teach music for, uh, for many years. So the program tonight opens with a brief piece by a, an Australian composer by the name of Connor Dinetto. He was born in 1994 and has received a variety of awards and is becoming uh, more and more uh, played throughout, throughout the world. His music is very eclectic, and as he describes it, I'm going to quote him here, he explores the intersections of experimental electronica, ambient, and electroacoustic music, combining hardware synthesizers, live instruments, guitar pedals, and do-it-yourself creations. Uh, he's a classically trained uh, singer, and um, he's also had a number of very uh, successful uh, exhibits and installations as a photographer and a videographer and a visual artist. The piece we're going to hear tonight, Uncertain Planning, was composed in 2020, just last year, on a commission from the Sydney Symphony Orchestra in his native Australia. And Simone Young, who is our conductor tonight, uh, premiered the piece in February of this year. I was sort of ruminating. It'll be interesting, won't it, to see the, the body of art, music, literature, painting, whatever it might be that comes out of COVID. Certainly, there's going to be uh, a, good, a good piece of it. And um, this piece uh, certainly was, was certainly written during the COVID, uh, the COVID time, and you can read uh, his own program notes about the piece. Um, listen, I took the opportunity to listen to a few other pieces by Connor Donetto, and what I can sort of tell you in advance is he's a composer who loves working with textures 
and colors. Um, if, you're, if you're looking for a melody to, to sort of hang your hat on, you probably won't find it, but if you, if you just listen to the progression of, as I said, textures and colors, I think that you'll get a, a lot out of this piece. I'm gonna give you just a little sample of a piece called Texture Number One, which I think will drive my point home a little bit, that he composed in 2015 and was recently awarded the Percy Breyer Memorial Prize in composition. So this is a little bit of texture number one by Connor Dinetto. People sometimes say to me, well, you know, how do you listen to a piece of new music? And I say, well, don't try and figure it out. That's the worst thing that you can possibly do. What I typically do is just sort of close my eyes, I'm trying to get my iPad to cooperate, close my eyes and let the, the music just sort of wash over, over me and let my mind wander. If you, if you try to sort of figure it out the way you might, uh, you know, a, a Mozart symphony or something like that, um, you might not enjoy it as much as you might as just letting it sort of, sort of happen. So the second piece on the program is the Korngold Violin Concerto. Uh, Korngold is a, one of my favorite composers. Um, if, if you do a little bit of Googling, you will find a map of homes occupied by emigre artists who took up residence in Los Angeles in the years of come, running up to the world, Second World War and, and after. And it's a long list, and it includes quite a few uh, people of in, in incredible musical importance, many of them sort of over on the west side. Arnold Schoenberg, Thomas Mann, Hans Eisler lived in Pacific Palisades, Bertolt Brecht lived in Santa Monica, Rachmaninoff and the conductor Otto Klemperer lived in Beverly Hills, as did Gustav Mahler's widow Alma with her third husband Franz Werfel. Stravinsky and Gershwin lived in the Hollywood Hills, and not only did all of these artists live in Los Angeles at the time, but many of them were fairly close. Uh, it might come, you might come as a little surprise for you to know that Arnold Schoenberg and George Gershwin were, were very close friends and played tennis together very often at the Schoenberg place on North Rockingham in the Palisades. Max Reinhardt uh, was an Austrian uh, uh, director who became very famous in his uh, native Austria and really helped establish, among other things, the Salzburg Festival with Richard Strauss and Hugo von Hofmannsthal. 
he came to the U.S. and directed a very popular stage version of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream in 1927 and again in 1934. The 1934 production took place at the Hollywood Bowl and was a big success. It starred Mickey Rooney and Olivia de Havilland, among others. And in 1935, following the success of the Bowl production, Reinhardt was asked by Warner Brothers to produce a film version of the play, and the cast again featured Mickey Rooney and de Havilland, as well as James Cagney. At Reinhardt's behest, the studio engaged one of Vienna's most talented and popular young composers, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, who was then in his late 30s, to come and do an adaption of Felix Mendelssohn's music for A Midsummer Night's Dream, which Mendelssohn composed in 1843, just a few years before he died. Now, you might remember that the overture to A Midsummer Night's Dream was composed by Mendelssohn as a separate standalone overture when he was a child, 16 or something. Uh, it was amazing. Well, Korngold um, enjoyed a considerable freedom of from Warner Brothers when he came uh, because Max Reinhardt had handpicked him to uh, write the music or adapt the music for this film version. He was given more rehearsal time with the orchestra, he was given more time to work on his arrangements, and he was even allowed to record the orchestra so that he could supervise with Reinhardt some of the blocking of the actors for the film. Um, nevertheless, Korngold didn't really much like California, and when he was done with that project, he returned to Vienna. But the film score, which was Mendelssohn's music adapted by Korngold for the film, was such a success and made such a strong impression on Reinhardt and other Hollywood film producers that offers came Korngold's way, and he eventually came back and settled in Toluca Lake. While he was here, Korngold, along with another Austrian, Max Steiner, and Connecticut-born uh, Alfred Newman, basically established the language of the classic Hollywood film score. Max Steiner wrote the music for King Kong in 1933, and Alfred Newman composed scores for more than 200 films between 1930 and 1970, he had 43 um, nominations for Best Original Score, and that was a record that held until 1911 when it was finally broken by John Williams. He did rack up nine Academy Awards. Korngold may be, uh, I mentioned Mendelssohn as a prodigious composer. Korngold may, in fact, be the most prodigious composer uh, in the history of music, that is to say, uh, as a child prodigy, um, exceeding the, the accomplishments, really, of Mozart and Mendelssohn, who were two very famous uh, child composers. He was born in the, now, uh, in the town of Brno, which is now in the Czech Republic, but he spent most of his youth and early years in the city of Vienna. And here's a little excerpt from a ballet score that Korngold wrote when he was a young person called Der Schneemann, the, the snowman.
mature. He was 11 when he wrote that. As you can hear, the music is full of lyricism and charm and grace, and it sounds completely Viennese, as if it was composed by a master of the late 19th century. But Korngold, as I say, was only 11 when he wrote it. In 1934, Warner Brothers asked him to write the music for a new swashbuckler, Captain Blood. He hesitated at first, feeling that he really wasn't well-equipped to write uh, original music for the film, but after watching some of the filming, and which featured Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, he changed his mind. De Havilland helped pave the way because she had been involved with Korngold uh, in the productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Hollywood Bowl. The music for Captain Blood almost instantly made Korngold one of the leading Hollywood film composers and also went a very long way toward establishing the musical language of film during Hollywood's golden era, along with uh, Max Steiner and Alfred Newman, as I mentioned. Certain scoring techniques that Korngold developed for Captain Blood are still very common today in the Hollywood film studios. Here's a little bit of the trailer from the 1935 uh, film Captain Blood, uh, complete with cannon shots and clanking swords. This is that kind of loud one, Kevin, so just beware. <laughs> Together, Korngold wrote 16 Hollywood film scores. He and his wife, Lucy von Sonnenthal, uh, lived just a few blocks away from the old Warner Brothers studios in Burbank until his death in, uh, at the age of 60 in 1956. He was interred at Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which, as you probably know, is the final resting place of people like Rudolph Valentino, Mickey Rooney, Douglas Fairbanks, Tyrone Power and many other film greats and talking about cemeteries, you might remember hearing about the death of Olivia de Havilland back in July of 2020 and she's buried in the famous Parisian cemetery Père Lachaise um, alongside more musical, literary, artistic uh, luminaries than I could possibly even begin to mention. Korngold's style was rooted in the music of Wagner and Richard Strauss. In the 1930s, long after the musical revolution brought about by Schoenberg, Stravinsky, and Bartok and others, Korngold was still writing music that was lyrical and lushly orchestrated and full of beautiful uh, melodies and clear traditional forms. Not the kind of thing that pleased the musical intelligentsia of the day, but it was perfect for Hollywood. So after Captain Blood in 1935, Korngold went on to write a string of successful scores, including those for The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938, also with Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, The Seahawk and The Sea Wolf from 1940, 1941, and King's Row in 1942. He won Oscars for Anthony Adverse and for The Adventures of Robin Hood. 
Once Korngold had finally embraced the idea of writing music for film, he didn't seem to have much of an interest in writing concert music anymore. But Korngold's friend, a Polish violinist by the name of Bronislaw Huberman, began asking Korngold for a violin concerto in the early 1940s. But Korngold really kind of lacked the inspiration to write a concert work for orchestra with the war going on. He, didn't, he couldn't see, imagine it being performed in, 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 in Europe anytime soon, so he sort of um, was just to put it on the back burner. But in 1945, Huberman renewed his request and Korngold quickly uh, came through with the first two movements of the concerto, but at that point the process came to a halt. There were a couple of reasons for this. Um, one of the reasons was that another violinist, a friend of Korngold's, a man by the name of Bronislav Gimpel, declared that the solo violin part was simply too difficult to play. And in addition, Huberman, for whom the piece was intended, refused to schedule a performance until he saw the third movement, which seems like a reasonable thing, right, for, for the violinist. But given Korngold's ability to write music now on short order um, from his film days, um, Korngold certainly could have and in fact did write the third movement when he sort of needed it. In comes Yasha Heifetz. Yasha Heifetz's uh, agent, a man by the name of Rudy Polk, came to the rescue and arranged a rehearsal with Heifetz and Korngold. Not only did Heifetz love the work, but he insisted that Korngold make the violin part even more difficult, presumably so no one else could play it. <laughs> Heifetz premiered the work to a rather lukewarm, critical uh, response, but Korngold, like Bach and Handel, Mahler and about every other composer in the history of music knew a good tune when he heard it or when he wrote it, and he wasn't too proud to reuse some of his own material. So here's the trailer for Korngold's 1937 score for Another Dawn, again starring Earl Flynn, and in this time, instead of Olivia de, Hav de Havilland, Kay Francis, Another Dawn. <laughs> That has a very distinctive rising theme. All right. Well, here's the opening of the violin concerto as performed by the man who made it famous, Yasha Heifetz. And the recording that you're going to hear was conducted by Alfred Wallerstein with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And if you look at the program, you'll see that the first performance of that piece here in Los Angeles was at the hands of these two uh, people in 1953. <laughs>
Well, the second movement of the violin concerto is this beautiful, gorgeous, lyrical, slow movement that uses material from an, another film by Korngold, the Oscar-winning score from Anthony Adverse. Here's just a little bit of the concerto. The third movement is a real romp. It's kind of a jig for orchestra and solo violin and begins with this sort of propulsive energy that carries through most of the movement, although there are sections that are much more lyrical, and I'll show you one of those in a second. But here's the beginning of the third movement. idea gives way to another version of the same melody in a much more lyrical way. Most of the music from the third movement comes from the 1937 film uh, The Prince and the Pauper, again Errol Flynn, this time with the great Claude Rains who was the uh, title character in 1943's classic The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Here's a little bit of the main title from The Prince of the Pauper. Prince and the Popper. And this develops in the violin concerto in a slightly different way, but it's very recognizable.
goes. So the concerto is very much a concert work that has its roots in Korngold's film scores. Don't think that it's just a bunch of tunes that were strung together. It's really a very, very sophisticated, integrated piece of concert music, and it's a real tour de force both for the orchestra and the violin soloist, especially after Yasha Heifetz got his hands on the solo part. The concert will conclude with the Fourth Symphony of Johannes Brahms, and the Fourth Symphony came along uncharacteristically very quickly after the Third Symphony of Brahms. Brahms had been um, buoyed by the reception of the Third Symphony in around 1883 or so, and especially in his hometown of Vienna, and the popularity of the Third Symphony sort of assuage some of Brahms's own self-doubts about his viability as a composer, if you can imagine that at that late date in his career he was still insecure, but he was. In early October of uh, 1883, Brahms was sitting in a cafe in Vienna with his good friend, the writer and literary critic Max Kalbeck. And Kalbeck inquired just casually as to what the composer had been doing over the summer, what he might have written. And Brahms tended to focus uh, most of his composing time during the summer, so it was a reasonable question on Kalbeck's part. And typically, Brahms told him that he had just been, you know, throwing up, put, putting together some polkas and dances and waltzes and so forth. But if Kalbeck wanted to hear some of them, um, he, he would invite him to come over and hear some on the piano. And Kalbeck took him up on the offer, but then Brahms sort of demurred and said that he'd let him know when that would happen. And he told him that he had to get his friend Ignaz Brühl to help him play through some of the pieces for Kalbeck. And Kalbeck knew immediately that Brahms was up to more than just writing polkas and waltzes because the Third Symphony had made its unofficial premiere at the hands of Johannes Brahms and Ignaz Brühl on the piano. So this meant that Brahms had been doing more than writing uh, little ditties. And within a few days, Kalbeck found himself in the piano showroom of the piano manufacturer Friedrich Erbar with Brahms and Brühl at the piano and several other friends of Brahms in attendance, including uh, Edward Hanslick, the great music critic, and Hans Richter, who had conducted the Third Symphony of Brahms not too long ago and had also premiered Wagner's Ring Cycle, among many other things. Richter would go on to lead the Halle Orchestra and the London Symphony and premiere Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto and Elgar's Enigma Variation. So he was a major force. The evening didn't go particularly well. The beautiful colors and orchestral textures, um, which we will hear tonight uh, in, the, in the orchestral version, were all lost uh, in the version for piano four hands. And the triumphant writing at the end of the symphony for brass was simply impossible to replicate. After, the, after Brahms and Brühl played through the first movement, there was a nerv nervous silence, and Brahms expected the kind of reception that he had gotten when the same pair premiered unofficially the third uh, symphony, um, but it was very, very quiet. Finally, um, uh, Brahms looked around and he barked, well, let's go on. 
He didn't know what to do. There was nothing, there was no response except a few little uh, throat clearings. Well, things really kind of only got worse after that. His friends didn't understand the fourth movement at all with its massive pasacalia, and I'll tell you about that in a second. The next day, Kalbeck got up, got up his courage, went to visit his friend Brahms and confronted him, telling him to hold the piece back to make the Pasacaglia finale a freestanding work and to write a whole new scherzo and finale. And Brahms was convinced that the piece would work with orchestra, and of course, time has proven him correct. The symphony, though, is reserved, you might even say austere at times, maybe brooding, but it's kind of a summing up of Brahms's life as a composer. The first movement is a kind of an essay on integrating an entire work based on a very simple interval, in this case, the third. Now, you know Beethoven did that, of course, with the Fifth Symphony with, with, that, with that motive and with the, with the interval. Brahms uses the interval of a third, and that's simply just the span of three notes. One, two, three, or one, two, three, either way. Here's the beginning of the symphony, how it sounds in the orchestral version. I'm going to put on my theory hat for just one second, and please bear with me. But it's really kind of interesting and helpful to understand this piece a little bit. So we hear that third, one, two, three. And then you hear this. And that note up there is C, which is three down from E where I ended up, one, two, three. So what you're really hearing is that third, and then this third, and then this third, but the last one, rather than going down, goes up, right? Okay? And then you hear, sorry, the same thing. And if you string all of these together, the, the notes minus that little transposition thing sounds like this. And then it goes back up. Oh, sorry. Okay, so you don't necessarily hear it obviously as, as such, but that little sequence of thirds is the, the key to the whole melody. Listen to it again. The second principal melody of that first movement appears first in the cellos, and it's one of those soaring lyrical melodies that we all love in Brahms. What 
What you don't necessarily hear so clearly is while the cellos are playing this beautiful melody, what are the, the violas and the uh, lower strings and some of the woodwinds doing? Thirds. So that whole idea of the thirds is, is taken over from the beginning. So it's very, very compositionally integrated and very, very clever. The other main idea that's heard in the first movement that sort of dominates is one that's dominated by the brass, and it's also based on the interval of the third, and I'm not going to bore you anymore with music theory. The third, the second movement, excuse me, is this beautiful intermezzo, and the third movement is a, a kind of a, a scherzo, but rather than being in triple meter, one, two, three, one, two, three, it's in two. But the, I want to get to the, uh, the fourth movement before I end. In the words of Brahms's uh, biographer, Jan Swafford, the, fi the finale stands as Brahms's most remarkable symphonic movement, most profound in craftsmanship, most wide-ranging in historical resonance. And in many ways, it sums up Brahms's compositional life, which in many ways was breathing life into old forms. And Brahms took a lot of heat from that, uh, for that, from the likes of Wagner and Liszt. Uh, there was a, this kind of war that went on in the late 19th century between the people that were aligned with Franz Liszt and Richard Wagner and those that were uh, aligned with, with Brahms. Well, in 1880, several years before the symphony ever came about, Brahms had a, a uh, conversation with Hans von Bülow, great conductor, and about Bach and some of the pieces that Bach had composed that were based on themes and variations, or which were themes and variations, or pieces based on some kind of a theme. Probably the most famous piece that has a theme in the bass is the so-called Pachelbel Canon, which isn't a canon at all. It's got this repeating bass line. And then... And the variations go over and over that bass line. That is, in effect, a passacaglia, or what's sometimes known as a chaconne. Um, these pieces, these chacones and passacalias go way back into the 16th century, and Bach made great use of them. You think of the, Pasa, the great organ passacalia um, or the, uh, the, the chacone for, for violin. Um, you know, he just made great use of the form. And in talking with, these, with von Bülow about these sorts of pieces, Brahms reportedly went to the piano and played the bass line from the last movement of Johann Sebastian Bach's Cantata 150. And I've got a little bit of it so you can hear how it sounds. Bye. 
Brahms apparently said to von Bülow, well, what do you think about... Oh, iPad, I'm going to have to have a word with you later. What do you think about me writing a, a piece based on that bass line? And Brahms said something interesting. He said he thought it would work, but it would need to be made a little bit more interesting, a little bit more complicated. So here's the, uh, here's the bass line from the Bach cantata. Okay. And if I transpose that up to E, the key of the symphony, it sounds like this. And all Brahms did was he added one little note. Now, there were a lot of influences that Brahms could have used in writing some sort of a Pasakaya, but Bach was his, his inspiration so much of his life. So the piece begins with this very, very austere kind of chorale with the brass dominating. And, and at the bottom of it, you hear this bass line that is borrowed from Bach. And the whole finale of the Fourth Symphony is nothing more than a series of variations on that melody. Sometimes it moves up into the upper register, sometimes it kind of disappears and just gives the, uh, the implications of the harmony, but it's, it's always there. The critics hated this because here was Brahms using Bach. George Bernard Shaw said, the real Brahms is nothing more than a sentimental voluptuary rather tiresomely addicted to dressing himself up as Handel or Bach or Beethoven and making a prolonged and intolerable noise. <laughs> well, maybe George Bernard Shaw was not exactly right because it's a masterpiece. It is a serious work. It's the culmination in many ways of Brahms' whole compositional career it's a majestic piece, and I know that you're going to enjoy it. I know that you're going to enjoy the concert. Thank you for your attention tonight, and have a wonderful evening. It's great to be back. Thank you.